Charlotte, and welcome to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. Today, I'm on with Bonnie Compton, and I'm excited to have Bonnie here because she's an old friend now. (laughs) She and I were in the Sacred Passage doula class together at the Conscious Dying Institute. And Bonnie is just, she's got a really interesting background that she'll tell you about. She is an end-of-life doula. She is a child and adolescent therapist and a parent coach. And she just brings a wealth of information to her new work, which is really focusing on pediatric death. So welcome, Bonnie. Thank you so much, Diane. I'm what so would, to be here. Yeah. What would you add to that introduction? Because I, I think your work is so rich and complex. What I would add is my why for doing this and how I began becoming interested. And it goes way back. Um, my dad and my brother died nine months apart suddenly traumatic deaths when I was 15. And my brother was electrocuted on a job as an electrician's apprentice he had done for three years. Wow. And my dad, nine months later, died for, um, at age 44 of a massive heart attack. And I remember saying, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. I didn't tell them I loved them. And a few years later, I went to nursing school And I learned about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and I could not get enough information. And so that seed was planted. I knew early on in life that life is precious, right? We have limited time here. So then I became a pediatric nurse practitioner and a child and adolescent therapist. In the back of my mind, this seed had been planted. And I started volunteering at the medical university Medical University at South Carolina on the pediatric palliative care team. And I kept thinking about what happens when a parent is told in the uh, fetal maternal clinic what they have is not compatible with life. What happens then? So it really took me on this journey. I didn't even know about end of life doulas, but all of a sudden somebody showed up and I heard that term and I'm like, what? So I Googled pediatric end-of-life doulas, which took me to Conscious Dying Institute. So it is a newer journey for me, but it started a long time ago. A long time ago. I mean, there's just so much to unpack in that. What? So, So you work primarily with families and parents especially. And is it any range of age of children that you are supporting people with the loss of? Yes. And again, my practice is newer. What I've been doing for many, many years is as a child and adolescent therapist and parent coaches supporting families in many ways, right? And so a parent, when they lose a child, that is traumatic, right? I don't care what age the child is or what age the adult is. Yeah. So I'm not limiting myself to a certain age, but I want to be of service to families who either have gotten a terminal diagnosis for their child or they're in, they're pregnant and they learn that their child will not live or might only live two days or a parent who has a 35 year old who has a terminal illness or their son died in a car accident or by suicide, Right. right? And so really there's the end of life doula piece supporting families um, in that manner. And then um, grief support after. And I also do trauma work um, and a particular type of trauma work that I'll be happy to share if there's time. 
to help support families. And how, how do families, how do families find you? I mean, I mean, obviously they can go to your website and we'll put that up later, but, but are you connected? Do they find you through a hospital? Do they find you? Are you, do emergency rooms know to refer people to a pediatric end of life doula? Or I'm hoping they're, they're going to learn about me, Be, you know, because Diane, when we finished the program, what, two years ago, two and a half years ago, or whatever yeah. it was, and then COVID, we're in the midst of COVID, right? Kind of put my practice on hold. But in the meantime, I was still working with parents doing the parent coaching I was doing, and I was volunteering on the pediatric palliative care team at the medical university. And so I've been doing some of this in a volunteer way. I recently was hired by um, the medical university to facilitate, to create and co-facilitate a grief support group for parents. And I've been honored to do that. And we are just last night, it was week five of a six week program. So we're finishing that. So I've been doing this doula work, I feel in many different ways, but it hasn't necessarily been in my private practice. So I'm now at the point it's time. And And, so I need to get word out. Yeah. And it strikes me as like, so needed, like across the board, every hospital, every maternity ward. I know, I know, you know, one friend told me a devastating story about finding out that her baby, which was in utero was stillborn, was, was not going, was not viable, had already died. And, and she said, you know, the, the experience of being in this ultrasound room, suddenly having the technician Uh, look kind of alarmed and leave the room suddenly and come back with a team of people. I mean, the mother knew something was wrong, but nobody spoke of her, spoke to her about it for a few minutes. And then she ended up being kind of wheeled down the hall for another test and was left alone in a sterile room. And, you know, Mm. she just said the experience that women go through with pregnancy loss or, or a, a newborn baby loss or, shortly after is just so not held by hospitals in the way that it might be. Uh, at least that's a, the experience of many people. I would love to be contradicted in that, but right, right. Like, how do you see that hospitals and palliative care centers might work more effectively with families? Sure. Well, again, I have been very fortunate to be part of the pediatric palliative care team at the medical university um, on a volunteer basis. And then contracted to create the grief support group. And I am in awe of what they do there. Again, in the fetal maternal clinic, they are there to support parents going through this palliative care is the bereavement coordinator on the team is there to support them, the family, and to begin those conversations and before the infant's death and after but that is not always available, right? Not always. Yeah, I love hearing that. I love it. It seems like that should be a model of programs. Right. So I would love to, in the future, even if it's not available in parents' areas, to offer virtual consults to help them through that. Because I've talked to enough bereaved parents that have said when they were very intentional and conscious about what they wanted to plan for their infant, not only in terms of after they had died, the care for them, but while those precious moments they had with them, when they created this special sacred time, it began to help them heal in their grieving. That makes so much sense. So there's, there's a way 
it would help lead to acceptance on some level of this tragedy. But how do you how do you make sort of how do you make um, not make sense? Because I don't know that there's any making sense. But how do you come to terms with what's happening? Right. And there's and a lot I, of in, that that helps to have people supporting and it helps to have enormous intention. And if you think about that is the last loving act a parent can offer their child is at the end of life while they still have them with them. Right. Yeah. Even if they're stillborn, they're still able to hold them They're to create, they're able to create that sacred time. Um, I don't think, and in this grief support group, a mom, we were, I was talking about different stages of grief and one being acceptance that your child has died. And she said, I can't use the word accept. She said, that doesn't fit for me. Mm -hmm. And she came up with some other words that do, and I I can't remember them right now, but I thought that makes perfect sense, right? You know, David Kessler in his book, The Sixth um, Stage of Grief, Finding Meaning, is about how do you find meaning in your child's life and death? Mm, Beautiful. And again, as you said at the beginning, at any age and for any cause. Right, right. So say a parent, parents who've lost a baby, either stillborn, in utero they died, or they lived 24 hours. How did the presence of their infant change them, their, their own lives? Mm. Even though they had a very short period of time to be with them. You know, Amy Wright Glenn in her book, Holding Space for Pregnancy Loss, talks about parents having to say goodbye before they ever got the chance to say hello. Mm. So holding that, you know, I I was working with a mom one day at the hospital and she had a little girl at home, five-year-old little girl. And last year she had um, a baby, a little girl who did not live, was stillborn. And this year she had a baby boy and he had a heart defect, but they were able to repair. Um, And so I went in because I go in and support parents And I was sitting with her and she was holding him and she, I said, how are you doing? I said, you know, we talked that she had lost her son last year. And I said, how is your heart? And the tears started down her face. And she said, nobody's asked me that. She said, I sit here and I find such joy and I'm so grateful for my baby. And I'm so sad for my baby that didn't live last year. So holding that space for both, right? And as wonderful as the palliative care team is, hospice, et cetera, they have limited time. And that's where I believe the role of the end of life doula is so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. What, What else do you wish? I mean, I think of sort of three different categories of people who get really impacted by a loss like this. What first are the parents, second are the siblings, and third are the kind of extended friend and family group. Right. What, what is helpful for any of those three groups to, to know about how to hold this? It's a great question, Diane. Um, are you familiar with, and I think we learned this in our program, 
comfort in, dump out the ring. Oh, theory. I love that. Yes, yes. Yeah. But talk yeah. about the ring theory. Yeah, that's okay. great. So, and I forget the psychologist that developed this, but you can Google it, the ring theory or comfort in, dump out. And if you think of concentric circles, right? So the bereaved parent or parents, they are in the center of the circle, right? So everyone is to comfort in to them. If the ones siblings, aunts, uncles, grandparents, friends are on the outside. And if they are feeling overwhelmed or angry that the child died or whatever, angry at the medical team that they envisioned didn't do enough or whatever, they are to dump out to the outer rings. Yes, nice. Never to dump in to that person, okay? So that begins kind of a graphic to tell you support them, but they're not there. The brief parents are not there to support directly. Of course, they're going to take care of their other children, et cetera. And also it's important for brief parents to realize the ripple effect. If you think of a baby's crib mobile, you touch one object, which touches the other, which touches the other. So recently I was talking to a mom whose nine-year-old died suddenly of a brain tumor, undiagnosed brain tumor. You can only imagine the pain of the parents and then the siblings that are left. And then what about the grandparents? Right. I'm a grandparent. I cannot imagine losing one of my grandchildren. Right. But I remind parents, it's important to tell those who are there to support you what you need. Don't assume they're going to know. It's going to be uncomfortable for them just as it is for you. And so the earlier parents can say, this is what would be helpful. This is what I need Mm -hmm. because everybody wants to support parents. Right. And they want to bring food and they want to spend time with them. And, you know, and they're also afraid to bring up the child's name for fear of making the parents sad. They're already sad. They're going to be sad, but they want to know that their child mattered and is not forgotten. Absolutely. And I think about how uh, it it feels like I've had this in other conversations. People talk about those the first week or two, a lot of people show up, but you know, what happens four weeks out, six weeks out, eight weeks out. And, and repeatedly people have talked about how sometimes it's surprising who shows up and continues to show up. And sometimes it's surprising who doesn't and finding some kind of space in your own broken heart to just you know, know that people are going to handle this in different ways and you won't get everything you need from everyone, but you'll get some things you need from some people. Yes. And you'll be disappointed sometimes from people that you thought were going to be there. Um, this one mom in the grief support group, um, it's been a year since her daughter died. And she said, a friend of hers texts her every morning. What are you doing to nurture your heart today? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a year later. That's that's powerful. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, this is interesting, this distinction between parent and grandparent, because I think it's very real grief for the grandparent. It is different than the parent. So somehow not to like convolute those and assume anybody else's experience is your experience, but just to make space for everybody's difficult experience. Right. Um, and if you think about grandparents, not only are they grieving the loss of their grandchild, they're grieving for their adult child, right? Watching what they're going through right. and their heart is hurting. So it's like a double layer, right? 
Right. So Bonnie, you're just like, you're right in there on the, you know, these, the, the real um, grief filled spaces for parents and families. What do you find uplifting despite the challenges of it? Because clearly you do find it uplifting. Helping being of service to others and, and hearing that like with a grief support group, this has sustained me. Yeah. Or I didn't like one day I was talking to the parents about emotions and the overwhelming emotions that occur with grief, like a tsunami of emotions. And I talked to them about um, Jill Bolte Taylor's book, Stroke of Insight. And she talks about emotions when allowed to move through your body. Research has shown us it takes 60 to 90 seconds for the emotions to dissipate. Mm-hmm. Yet we resist, we push them away, we all the stuff that we do, right? We re- keep revisiting them. We have like this circular right. <laughs> tape going on in our head. And I said, if you're able to allow yourself to feel the emotions, to let them run through you, not try to go over them, under them, around them, do it as an experiment and mm-hmm. see if you can help you can determine that they are dissipating a little bit lessening so a mom last week said and she's farther down her grief journey but was trying to stay positive in the beginning it's almost like she has delayed grief now right and she said bonnie i thought about what you said because i've been crying like all day and all day and she's a school teacher so it's difficult right she leaves the classroom but she said on the weekends i cry and cry and cry And I began to think about what you said about allow yourself to feel bits of emotion and let them go through, move through you. She said, so I started doing it. I'm no longer crying all day. I realized I wasn't giving myself permission or time to feel what I was feeling, right? So just bits like that, Diane, when I know that it's helping them heal their and move further on their grief journey. They will always be sad. I don't believe in moving, moving on, moving with your grief, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You've probably seen this and we may have talked about this in class um, about grief doesn't shrink. Life expands around grief. And so how can you, last night in the group, we talked about can you hold pain and sadness and joy at the same time? Amazing. And, and I feel like we kind of, we, I don't know, we get sold a bill of goods or something, or we somehow think we can't do that or that it'll be too much. But I love this idea that when you allow it to just move, it actually, it moves and then you're moving with it instead of against it or hoping it'll go away or stuck in it. Well, and the other thing, and one of the moms talked about this last night, I can feel bits of joy at time and sadness. And then I feel guilty as if she's not honoring her child. And so we talked about that. And I also said, and I say this to all moms, and I said this in the book that I wrote, Mothering with Courage, mama guilt, it's a real thing. And it's the gift that keeps on giving, giving and giving if we allow it. So, so true. Every mom. Say a bit about the, um, the trauma work. You said you work with a specialized kind of trauma work. Yes. I learned this two years ago and Diana, I will have to tell you, I, in all of my trainings, and I've done a lot of trainings, 
I have never learned a technique, a modality, a protocol, whatever you want to call it, that changes and transforms people's lives so quickly. So it's called RTM. It stands for Reconsolidation of Traumatic Memories. They're using it with veterans who have PTSD from war. And research is showing that it is 90% effective. And 20 years later, the PTSD has not returned. Wow. So I learned this two years ago, right before COVID. Everything kind of seemed to happen around COVID. And I've been using it and I have helped mothers who have lost children because that is traumatic grief. I have helped women who were sexually abused as children. And one who is 52 told me recently, I feel for the first time I've gotten my childhood back. This was after two sessions. The protocol is you aren't to do any more than three. It's not re-traumatizing. It's not therapy. It's neurobiologically based. And so RTM helps reconsolidate those traumatic memories in the brain, right? So it's neurobiologically based and it's through a visualization process of making movies, short movies. So you start off with practice movies, um, like something you do every day, brushing your teeth. And I take them through that process. Then they tell me a bit about the trauma, but I don't ever let them go too deep so that they're traumatized. And they create a movie about that. But as I tell them, you will never be watching this movie. Take them into a theater. They watch their theater self down below. They're up in the projection and both watching it. Anyway, I could go on and on. It is so powerful. And by the end of that two-hour session, when I have been monitoring and really have them complete forms, looking at emotions related to terror, fear, terror, and helplessness, these scores drop from a 10 to a zero. Wow. So it's it, just, it's another tool in your toolbox as, yeah. as a therapist and a coach, but you found it to be just dramatically effective. Yes, absolutely. So we all carry trauma, big T, little T, right? You could turn on the news every night. And then my husband, who's also trained in this, we say they need RTM, they need RTM. <laughs> wow. So anyway, we just did a, um, the Gary Schmidt who trained me did, he and I did an in-service for the pediatric palliative care team and the adult palliative care team. Um, and they were all very interested. And we've also talked about healthcare worker burnout due to COVID and the trauma around that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, I think in the future, we might be able to do some things to help, but yes. So it is part of my practice um, when I feel they would benefit um, because parents, you know, after the loss of a child, they have flashbacks, they have nightmares, they have intrusive thoughts, and they really complicates their grief. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I love talking to you, Bonnie. I feel like we could do a whole other thing just on trauma because really they, they weave together so incredibly this specialty that you have of pediatric loss, but then also trauma and grief and how those inhabit us and how we can move with them if we find constructive ways to do so. Right. Right. And, you know, I had someone recently, a business coach saying, what are you doing? When you are a parent coach, you've got to brand yourself. I said, no, I don't. I, these are all healing modalities. And so my parent coaching is, um, 
one area and but the other area is the healing even the parent coaching is is healing for families right right you see it as like it's all under the same umbrella yeah yeah so i i have two different websites but um they're all yeah, let's let's talk about those. You've got um Bonnie Compton, B-O-N-N-I-E-C-O-M-P-T-O-N, BonnieCompton.com, where you can yes. find out yeah. about a lot of your work. Yeah. And then your new newer website is gentleheartjourneys.com. Yes. And there you talk more about your end-of-life doula work and trauma and grief and healing. Yes, yes. You got it. Well, thank you for joining me today, Bonnie. I appreciate it. It's great to see you again. Thank you so much, Diane. I love what you're doing. Thanks. Bonnie's been one of my early podcast fans. Yay, Bonnie. (laughs) I used to have a podcast. I guess it's still up there, wholehearted parenting. Um, I love podcasting and I was so excited you were doing it. And yes, I've been cheering you on from the sidelines and I love your guests. And um, so I've had some really interesting people, including you. So thanks to Bonnie. And um, you can find out more about her at the websites we just mentioned. And you can find out more about the work I do at bestlifebestdeath.com. Thanks so much for listening.